Well, good morning, everyone. What great hope we have, oh, glorious day. And I think as we draw closer to the Lord over time and as we grow in maturity, the closer we get to the, the holy light of God, the more we realize how much we need to be saved. God is perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, he's good, he's just. And we're going to be as dependent upon grace in the last day of our lives as we were at the first moment we met him. And in God's goodness, he allows us to go through different challenges and struggles and allows us to come face to face with who we still are as we need to grow in Christ. And I have to say this past week, the Lord held the mirror really close to me and just re was reflecting attitudes and things that I wasn't even aware of. And just having to come face to face with my own sin, oh, glorious day. <laughs> How we look forward to that day when we'll be completely set free. And I was encouraged this week as I just contemplated and pondered a song by the late Rich Mullins called Step by Step. And part of the song says, and on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb seems so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach, oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. And I'm so thankful for that rich grace. <laughs> it is a climb, it's an ongoing battle as day by day as we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, against ourselves, against sin to know that we'll never stumble beyond his reach and he'll always be drawing us back so that we're closer to him and we're learning more about the greatness of the gospel. And I pray that you'll give yourselves the freedom as you face your own sins and downfalls and faults to just cry out to the Lord. Just say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> On this road to righteousness, the climb may seem so steep and I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. Had a good time this past week as well, just celebrating however different things that are going on. And I pray that you'll take some time to celebrate with our graduates afterwards, uh, the Johnsons. Um, they've been part of this family for a while now, and they're going through a lot of challenges right now. And so this is a good time for us just to rally around them and say congratulations and to pray for them. And I hope you'll hang around at 11 a.m. There's different classes you can join. But come, if nothing else, to hear more about what's happening with Tirza and Dylan and their lives and how the Lord is using them. And I'm excited that, at least for me, I was able to start a class this past week, and somebody wanted to encourage me in, in the class that we're learning, so they made a T-shirt for me. And so here, a T-shirt that I have that's just going to remind me that as we pray, let's pray big, let's rejoice in who God is, that he is a God worth praying to. And if, if you're not already part of the class, Come and join us in the music room at, uh, at 11 a.m. And please turn off your cell phones at this time so we get going, so we're not interrupted. Dr. John Feinberg is a skilled theologian and philosopher who has written many useful works on the nature of God and the truth of the gospel. He's had a great impact on evangelical thought and theology in the 20th and 21st centuries. He's written many deep books, lengthy books on the nature of evil and suffering, offering answers to difficult questions in what we call the discipline of theodicy, which is a defense of God against charges of injustice and wrongdoing. 
when I was at seminary, I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Feinberg as he was one of the professors in my theology courses, and I found that his works are worth reading, but it takes a little effort to stay with them. He is a, is a brilliant mind, a great defender of the Christian faith. But the life of this great scholar and that of his wife, Pat, were changed dramatically and suddenly on November 4, 1987, when Pat was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, which according to the Mayo Clinic is an inherited degenerative disease of nerve cells in the brain that cause a breakdown in functional abilities, impairment in cognitive understanding, and psychiatric disorder. I've heard it said that this disease is a combination of ALS and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. The disease is fatal with no known cure, and suddenly the works of this great theologian took on a different meaning. He now understood in a deeper way that there is a great difference between having great philosophical and theological ideas, which are important in the formation of our Christian worldview, but there's a difference between that and the need for sound, emotional, and practical understanding when the crises of life hit hard. We said last week as we looked at Jesus as he came to those that were battling the winds and waves of the Sea of Galilee, it's on the shores of life that we're to build our theology and discover and understand who God is so that when the storms of life come, we're rooted and grounded in the truths of the Scriptures. Well, in response to what happened to them, Dr. Feinberg and his wife wrote a much more reflective book on the nature and suffering that they entitled with a question mark, Deceived by God. And in this book, they wrestle with how to deal with different difficult things on a personal and relational level. And this book is full of practical deliberations on how to build trust in God in the midst of challenge and difficulty. And one of the things that Dr. Feinberg writes about that he found especially helpful, now I'll preface that by saying he gives a whole chapter of things not to say when people are struggling with difficulties. That's also a helpful chapter. But then he gives a chapter of things that he found particularly helpful. And one of the questions that he heard from a colleague he found was helpful for him to process the suffering he was going through. And that was this, doesn't this make you hate sin even more? And as the Feinbergs related on this, they said yes, because ultimately all suffering and sickness and eventually death come as a consequence of sin entering the world. Now that is not to say that there is always a one-to-one -one correspondence between our personal sin and suffering. But it is to say that because of the introduction of sin into the world and the fallenness of man's state before a holy God, that man and creation and man to man have all been affected in their relationship with God and with each other. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came to redeem and restore all that was lost in Adam to restore the broken relationship we have with our Creator, to restore and reconcile the broken relationship we have with each other, to reconcile and restore the broken relationship we have with creation, and that more and more we'll see the effects of what Christ has done overcoming the effects of what Adam did, but we wait that glorious day when all will be made right. On the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see Jesus dealing with one of the drastic and dramatic effects of sin's entrance into the world, namely sickness and disease. In just a few verses, Matthew shows that Jesus is Lord and has authority over all the effects of sin and further demonstrates his status as the Messiah. 
God in the flesh who came to redeem a people for his eternal glory. He is the forgiver of sins, the liberator from sin, the healer of sin. And it's good for us to look at this morning what Jesus has accomplished in his work as the Messiah. And I invite you to stand for the reading of our passage this morning as we finish up our time in Matthew 14 this morning. And we will read Matthew 14, verses 34 to 36. And the truthful and wonderful word of God says, And when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it as the blessing it's intended to be. Please be seated. And let us pray. Oh, gracious God, we're thankful for such a good word, an encouraging word, a challenging word, because, Father, we know fully and plainly who we are and who you are. And we're so grateful for a Savior that has bridged that gap between us. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we need you to be our teacher. And so through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you guide and would you move? Would you open eyes and ears? Would you cause hearts to soften? Would you cause hands to be mobilized as we come into this holy encounter with your word, hearing from you that we would leave this place this morning not the same way we came in, but knowing that we have met with the living God and have been changed. So, Father, guide us in these moments as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we're going to finish our study in Matthew 14. That doesn't mean we're going to stop in Matthew. We're just going to finish Matthew chapter 14 this morning and look at what Jesus has done. And then when we've done that, we're going to take some time to summarize what have we seen about Jesus in Matthew 14. Because I think that will help us have a greater appreciation and a broader understanding of who Jesus is, of why he came, and the authority that he displays over all aspects of creation. And it will serve as a good reminder of why we can trust him as Savior and Lord, especially in the most challenging situations we encounter in this short life that we have upon this earth. And so we count on God to be our guide and our teacher this morning as we go to this word, and I pray you already have God's word open in front of you or open on your phone in front of you, and we want to dive in. Uh, but before we do, let me say good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to what God has for us in Matthew 14, and I hope that you're already ready to receive from the Lord what he has for us in his word. So would you turn to Matthew 14 and study with us as we continue on. Our first major point is, he's here, the word goes out. He's here, the word goes out. And our text begins, and when they'd crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Once again, Jesus and his disciples are taking a trip over the seas of Galilee. This is one of the several trips in Jesus' ministry where they go back and forth from the eastern to the western side, from one side that's under the control in Judea and the other one under the control of pagan lands. And who is it that you know, they're going to see and what they're going to do in each place? And it becomes an interesting study. Now, in this particular one, they're making the trip back across the Sea of Galilee from Bethsaida, 
which was on the Golan Heights on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're moving to the western side to a location south of Capernaum on the edge of the sea. And you recall, as we looked at it last week, with Jesus coming to them on the water, that he compelled them. That's what the word means. He compelled them to get into the boat. And so they were in the boat, and they were out on the sea under his divine direction, and he saw them, and he prayed for them, and he went out to them, and he brought them through. But you recall that he compelled them to get into the boat because he wanted to get them away from the crowds who were tempted to come and make Jesus king, but an earthly king. And Jesus, of course, is more than just an earthly king. Now, when we say we crossed, they crossed the sea at that point, we know at least in part that part of that trip was done on foot. As Jesus walks across the water and comes out to them in the middle of the sea, and even Peter himself took a few steps on the water, as we saw last week. Matthew simply tells us they arrive. He doesn't give us any reason for why they arrive at that particular place, which is south of Capernaum, which was his headquarters in Galilee. It was north of Tiberias, which is where the Roman leaders set up headquarters. We don't really know, but he brings them to a different city that at least hasn't been recorded yet, of, of having received one of his visits so far in the Gospel according to Matthew. Perhaps he still wants to have that personal time of training with his disciples. Now, this area is an interesting one. It's located about three miles south of Capernaum. It was an agricultural area about three miles long and one mile wide, right along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and it was known for its rich and fertile soil. It had water supplied from wadis that came from the north and the west. It was famous for the grapes and the figs that grew there most of the year, as well as the quality of its olives and walnuts. In fact, one tradition says that the fruits were of such quality and goodness that the rabbis did not allow their sale during the feast in Jerusalem for fear that people would simply come to Jerusalem to partake of the wonderful harvest. And according to one Jewish historian, Josephus, the rabbis referred to this area as the Garden of God. Now, in our text this morning, we know that it's referring to the Sea of Galilee, but you'll find in other gospel accounts it has a different name. It takes its name from the region. That's why places like Luke chapter 5 refer to it as the Lake of Gennesaret, which was the name that was more in common use among Gentiles and other Romans. The region itself was rather populated because of fertile soil and the pleasant living conditions. And so all of that with background of what is this place that they're landing upon as we read the story this morning. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region. So somehow they recognize who Jesus is, and they know at once the importance of his arrival for the people of that region. And so can you imagine now what's happening? This, this boat arrives on the shore. Some people hear it, and, and in your mind's eye, you can imagine now people scurrying about and sending others out and saying, the healer is here. What is your condition? Come and be healed. Come and see the miracle worker. Imagine being ones working out in the field and you hear the news that Jesus is coming and you have sick family members at home. Imagine being a mother who is cradling a sick child and you hear that Jesus has come. Imagine being a neighbor who knows of other neighbors who are having difficulty. Imagine the downtrodden and the bedridden hearing that there is hope for them yet. And though, though he might have wanted to have some quiet time as they arrived at the shores of Gennesaret, the word spread quickly that Jesus was there. Now we know that Jesus has already spent a great deal of time in the region of Galilee, and so word would have spread about 
who he was, his teacher, his teachings, I should say, his character, his nature, but now he's here. The word goes out. All you who are sick and needy, come. Which brings us to the second major point. Heal us. The plea goes up. So we'll pick up the reading around in verse 35. And they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. The statement is clear. We can imagine the scene as well. Imagine the scenes on the horizon that start to appear of carts and horses carrying sick people, a different variety of diseases and maladies that people are bringing. Perhaps their number seems almost endless. But as Jesus sees them, he has compassion. And as you look at where this is happening in the timeline of Jesus, we see a dramatic contrast. For in the preceding chapters, there has begun to be this growing opposition to Jesus coming from the religious leaders, coming from the Roman leaders. And that opposition will get even greater as we leave this episode and move into the next chapters in Matthew. But while Jesus is experiencing greater and greater opposition, he does not refrain from what he is supposed to do. Even in the midst of opposition, he remained faithful in the ministry that he had been sent to do. He continued to carry out his works as the Messiah. And I think there's a lesson there for us. We can't allow ourselves to be sidetracked when we face opposition, or we can simply stay faithful in what we've been called to do, knowing the opposition is still going to be there, but so is our responsibility to stay faithful to our calling. And so they came, many of them, many different diseases and illnesses, their pains and their sufferings. They sent around all to that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. The word for implored is parakaleo. It means to cry out earnestly, to, to plead or to beseech. They're pleading with Jesus. Please heal our sick. Here are the opportunities, are the, the needs that we have, an opportunity to see you at work. And you can imagine the parents pleading on behalf of their kids and spouses pleading on behalf of one another and loved ones pleading on behalf of neighbors and other loved ones. Please heal us, they say. Now, we've seen in Matthew already a couple of times that Jesus heals and that healing was one of the signs of the Messiah and that healing people of their physical diseases and maladies was part of what he accomplished, but it's pointing to a greater disease from which he will cure us, and that is our sin. Earlier on in Matthew, we saw that what Jesus was doing as he healed people from their illnesses was to fulfill what had been predicted through the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So here we find the people that know their needs, their suffering. They don't need to be told that things are broken in life. They don't need to be told that there are great needs. They just hear about Jesus and they go to him. And we can still do the same. We can take whatever our needs are, whatever our difficulties, whatever our challenges, whatever our responsibilities, and we can take them to him. And we can even cry out and say, would you heal us? And so after we have just seen the word goes out, and now we see the, the plea for healing, we get to be well, the healing goes out. And they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Now we've seen something similar here in the gospel according to Matthew. Back in chapter 9, verse 22, there was a woman who had been experiencing great health issues for 12 years, had spent all that she had, and she was 
refused fellowship with the community. She was seen as unclean, and so she could not enter the temple. She could not be in social interaction, and her plea was simply, if I can just reach out and just touch the fringe of her garment, I can be healed. And she was healed. And the same word is used here. If we could just touch the fringe of his garment, the word in both cases is krasledon, which means tassel. It comes from Numbers 15, 38, which required, according to the law, that all Jewish men, particularly those who were teachers, to have tassels attached to each of the four extremities of their cloak. A similar requirement is seen in Deuteronomy 22. You shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Right down to the details, we see that Jesus fulfills the requirements of the law, the teachings of the law and the prophets, the teachings that were predicted of what the Messiah would be like. Nothing will be left undone and untouched. He will fulfill all the details. And then we see the amazing tenderness and kindness of our God. And as many as touched it were made well. Now we sit here calmly and quietly in our evenly lined pews in a climate-controlled situation, but I want you to imagine being out in the open in, a, in an area where crowds are gathering around and they're bringing all their sick and they're bringing all of their people that are infirmed and they're just saying, just, just, touch, just touch the hem. Just get close enough to touch the hem. And when people are being healed, the celebration that would break out and the joy that would spread and the testimony and more people are coming, just touch the hem, just touch the hem. What a spectacle. It was chaotic. And it was beautiful. And I look forward to when we see all the home movies, you know, as God gathers us around. And I want to know what this scene looked like. I, I, I want to see the sights and sounds and smells and yells and joys. Because what we see in this picture is that Jesus entered fully into our humanity, into our human experience, interacted with people when they were even at their worst. And didn't run away, didn't scowl, didn't rebuke. And you can imagine him being there, and they just keep coming. He just keeps coming. And he just keeps healing. They keep healing. They come that they might understand the greatness and the mercy and the love of God. And how powerful Jesus is, that just even a, a touch on the fringe of his garment would be enough. So we're told that at least on this occasion, Jesus healed all who came to him. There's no mention of the list of diseases that were cured. It just said that they were cured. They were healed. Jesus is showing that he has authority over all things in creation, including illnesses, over every disease, over every weakness. And if we go back to the book of Exodus, as God is explaining himself who he is, and he reveals to Moses in these words, I am the Lord, your helper. Anahua Yahweh Rafe. I am the living one. I am the Lord who heals. And Jesus very tangibly shows that he is worthy of that same name. He again shows that he has divine power and is truly God in the flesh. He is Yahweh Rafe for us today. Now there's no mention here made directly that those that came to be healed that day, experienced anything other than the healing of physical diseases. But I think if we dig a little bit, we see there might be more there. 
But even if not all of them were saved of their sin and had eternal salvation, just think of the compassion that God chose, that Christ chose in healing them all. And the different miracles that Jesus has performed, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000 or healing of mass crowds of people, he shows that he is compassionate and kind and merciful and gracious. And so as part of his grace, his common grace, he sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. The mercy and grace of God are always given to the undeserving. Because if they were deserved, they wouldn't be mercy and they wouldn't be grace. And so even those perhaps that will never be in the throngs of heaven were being healed on that day. Such is the greatness and lavish kindness of our Lord. But I think there's hope found here in this verse in one word. You see, the word for made well or healed is dia sozo. Sozo is the word for salvation. Now, there's different levels of salvation, salvation from danger or salvation from disease or salvation from sin. But you add the word dia to the beginning and it talks about through and through or complete and so it might be then that those that were healed on that day were healed completely body and soul. And we just have to think, well, Jesus was a teacher everywhere he went. So surely he was teaching about the kingdom of God even while these things were going on. Surely he was talking about why he came and what he came to save people from. And it's not hard to imagine then because we have other examples that he would have healed them, both body and soul. Ultimately, only the bright light of eternity will reveal what happened on that day in its fullness. But there is surely hope when Jesus is present. And as many as touched it were made well. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The opportunity, the invitation is there for all. As many as touched it were made well. Come, all you who are needy and poor and sick. Come, all who are lonely and outcast. Come, all who need to be healed. Come, all who need to be forgiven. Come, just as you are. Come and do not delay. First, we saw that he's here and the word goes out. Then we saw a second heal us, and the plea goes out. And third, he said, be well, the healing goes out. All who come to Jesus will never be turned away, but they need to come. So come. When I was back in seminary, we would go out and we'd do evangelism in neighborhood communities and shopping malls and at university campuses. And I was out one day at one of the universities in the Chicago area, and we would go out two by two, and the, the guy that I was with was an African-American brother, and we went to different places in the mall, and he said, I want to lead this next one, okay? And I said, great, I want to learn from you. And so we went, and he, he had a bunch of other African-American men that we began to talk to, and he began to preach the gospel to them. And he turned to me and he said, Brother Greg, do you wash up before you take a shower? And I said, no, I just go straight to the shower. And then he went on to explain the gospel. And he said, you know, there are so many people that think, I've got to get my act together and then I'll come to Jesus. I've got to clean up first. I've got to stop this. I've got to stop doing that. I've got to get all my ducks in a row and then I'll be worthy of coming to Jesus. It's not the gospel. The gospel does not say clean yourselves up and then come to Jesus. The gospel says come to Jesus and he will cleanse you. 
as many as were touched were made well. Do you believe that? Are you willing to come just as you are? Because today is an opportunity. Tomorrow may not be an opportunity that we have. So that brings us to the end of chapter 14. And when we get to chapter 15, we will see that the scene changes, the setting changes. I would say the mood changes in the ministry of Jesus. He's been dealing with crowds now for a few chapters, and the, the focus will now shift to how he's going to interact with the Jewish and religious leaders. The conflict will continue to grow. But rather than take the time to begin the historical background and context as we go into chapter 15, we're going to take some time to summarize now what we have seen, who Jesus is in Matthew 14. And the reason for that is I want you to be able to walk away from here and you meet your neighbor for coffee on Tuesday morning and you can share the gospel from Matthew 14 about who Jesus is. Okay? So let's, let's look at then who Jesus is in Matthew 14. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of run through some verses here. So have your Bibles open and just be ready to move with me. But take some good notes and, and have a way that you can study what's going on. First of all, there are two incidences of mass healings in this passage. Verse 14 of chapter 14 and the one that we've just read. And then in between, there are two great miraculous events that Jesus performs. He is showing what the ministry of the Messiah looks like. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals people of their sins and their diseases. And we remember then that Jesus told us that he has a unique relationship to the Father, that he's the only son of the Father, that he's the revealer of the Father, that he's in control and does the will of the Father. And so just as a reminder of what he said back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is a divine passing of the baton, if you will. This is deity giving to deity things that we should do, or he should do. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is in control under the design of the Father to reveal and to heal and to do all the things that he can do. And so what does he do then in the uniqueness of that relationship that he has with the Father? And then we see the examples in chapter 14 where he shows us that he is the bread of life. He feeds the 5,000. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We don't need to revisit the context in the background. But there were 5,000 of them in addition to, men, to women and children. And at that time as Jesus was teaching and we looked at the parallel passage in John chapter 6, we saw that Jesus drew a clear connection between who he was and what he was doing and the manna of Moses when the people were in the wilderness. And he's saying, I am the true manna that comes down from heaven. I am the true bread of life who gives life to all who trust in me, to all who come to me that I might be their life and sustenance. And that's the meaning then of how we must eat the flesh of Jesus, not in a literal cannibalistic sense, but we depend upon him as our life giver. He's the bread of life who gives life to all who come to him. He feeds the people in the wilderness as they're moving towards the great feast that they will have around the table of the Lamb one day. As he's, mo as he's moving his people through the wilderness of this life, he is the new Moses who is the manna that has come down from heaven. 
And in this rich relationship he has with the Father, he invites us to come and dine. We saw that when we read through this passage. Come and sit with him at the master's table. Be fed, be full, be satisfied. Follow me all the way to eternal life. Now, Brother Jim, I hope you're ready this morning. Because a few weeks ago, I was going to have them sing a song. And if you've ever been with the Bamford family in one of their big family gatherings, they like to sing together to recognize that Jesus is the bread of life. And so this is unannounced to them, but they're going to sing that song for us this morning. And if you've ever been at the Bamford home, when they sing this song, I want you to sing as well so that we know that Jesus is the bread of life. Lead us on, Jim. And dine the master calleth. So Jesus is the bread of life in Matthew 14. Secondly, Jesus is the ruler of the seas. And we saw that walking on the water and having control over the seas was a unique prerogative and power of God in the Old Testament. And there's some verses here, and we investigated some others when we looked at Jesus walking on the water. As Jesus led his people out of the exodus, through the Red Sea, he let them walk through on dry land as he judged the enemies of God. And twice in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has appeared to his, or been with his, apostles in the storms upon the sea. And as we saw last week, not only did he see them as he's in the hills, he's the one that sent them there, so he knows exactly what's coming to them. And he looks out and he sees them struggling in the midst of the waves, and he's praying for them. And then at a given moment, he stands up and he comes down the mountain and he walks across the waves and the wind and the storms and the mist and walks out to them. And as they're struggling in the sea, he gets in the boat with them and calms the storm and calms them and brings them safely to the shore. Friends, Jesus is the ruler of the seas. And he sees us in the storms of our lives, and he is not unaware. And he prays for us. We are told that even now he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf as we go through the struggles of this life. And he promises us to be with us, and he comes to us, and he will bring us safely to the shores of heaven one day. You can depend upon him. You can cast all your cares upon him, whatever you may be facing or wherever you are. For he is the ruler of the seas, even as he is the bread of life. Thirdly, he is the great I am. As we saw last week, while the phrase in chapter 14, verse 27, is translated in the ESV as it is I, that the expression behind it is actually ego, ami, I am, I am, or I, I am. And when this phrase was used in the Old Testament, it referred to Yahweh, the Father, for it means I am the living one. I am. And Jesus picks up on that on many occasions in all of the gospel accounts when he says I am. And sometimes he says it followed by a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. 
And other times he just simply says, I am. He knows who he is. He is God in the flesh revealed to us that we might have peace with God. And so as we said last week when we looked at this passage, we can almost title it this way, Never fear, I am is here. And that truth brings calm and confidence and assurance to the child of God that in any of our needs we can cry out to him for he is the, the I am, the living one. We're told in the writer, by the writer of Hebrews that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And if he upholds all things by the word of his power, my friend, he is upholding you. And you can cry out to him as the I am. Fourthly, in Matthew 14, he is the healer of the sick. We've already looked at this. If Yahweh is Yahweh Rapha of the Old Testament, Jesus does the same in the New Testament. And that's perhaps the one thing that everybody knows Jesus about, that he is the one who heals the sick. He healed the one born blind or the one lame from birth, healing people from all types of maladies and illnesses, whatever the cause, whether natural or spiritual because of demons. And I believe that it is still possible for physical healing to take place today. And I believe that it is right for us to pray that it happens today. But we pray and surrender to his will that if it be his will, it will be done, and then we will praise him. But if it is not his will, then we thank him that he is sufficient to strengthen and guide us through the day-to-day -day processes that we will face. For that physical healing, even if I'm physically healed in this life, I will still die because of sin. And I need the salvation that will come body and soul to all of my being that I will have one day. And in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be perfect, we will rejoice in his glorious presence forever. All that was lost, as we've said, in Adam will be restored in Christ. And so these things so far as we look at it, the bread of life and the I am and the healer of the sick and the ruler of the seas, they all point to the promised Messiah who would bring all of the plans of God and his plans of redemption into fulfillment, that he would be the focal point of all that God has been doing and redeeming a people for himself. And in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Law and the Prophets. The Apostle Paul, as he's explaining the gospel to the church in Corinth, says this, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him, Christ. That is why through him we can utter our amen to God for his glory. The more we understand Christ, the more we understand what was promised, the more we understand how he fulfilled it, the more we are able to respond to Jesus for exactly who he is and what he is worthy of. And that brings our next point, which is he is worthy of our worship. And so it's not without cause then that the apostles, as they saw him coming to them, on the waves, as the storm is raging, he comes to them. And they see him calm the waves and the wind and calms them, we're told, and those that were in the boat worshipped him. Jesus is worthy of our worship as a way of life, as a commitment of heart, soul, mind, will, strength. But think about what's happening here as Jesus is worshipped. These are Jewish men. They know what the law says. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet Jesus does not rebuke them for worshiping him. It was never a rebuke. There will never be a rebuke for us as we worship Jesus Christ as Lord. 
because he is worthy of our greatest worship, our greatest affections. And think of this. According to the promise we have in Scripture, one day we're going to join the throngs of heaven who are going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we will worship Jesus fully for all eternity, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so here's the opportunity. This is all just spring training, getting us ready for the real game. And so let's learn to worship and let's learn to adore and let's learn to bend the knee and let's learn to pour out our praises to Christ who is worthy of our worship. And not only is he worthy of our best and our first and our greatest and our first and last praise, he's worthy of our trust. So if Jesus is all of these things that he has shown us in actions in chapter 14, then it is only right and just that we place our trust in him as the Lord and the Savior of our lives. He is worthy of our trust, for he has promised to be with us and never to forsake us and promised to meet our needs and promised to go through things with us and promised to be our deliverer. Have you gone to him for deliverance? Are you carrying the weight of guilt and shame from your sin this morning? He's here to take it away. Are you in pain and in need of the Lord bringing comfort and mercy, whether it's emotional or relational or otherwise? He promises to be the comforting balm to our souls. Are you in need of having your daily provisions met? He is the one who commands us to say, give us this day our daily bread, and he is the one through whom God provides. Are you experiencing brokenness or weariness or worry or fear or hopelessness? And if we're honest, we all have those moments where we experience those things. But Jesus is the great I am, and he's worthy of our trust. And so at any moment, in any situation, in any crisis, or in any moment of great joy, we can cry out to him and say, you are the one who can heal me, who can forgive me, who can restore me, who can provide for me, who can lift me up. So, friends, the invitation goes out that is actually a command. Come to him today while you still can. In recent days, we've, we've had the privilege, but the painful privilege, of laying several dear saints to rest. But they have safely arrived on the shores of heaven. If they could be with us today, they would testify that all that Jesus said is worthy of your trust. And they would call you to go deeper in your trust with him. It's really only as we see Jesus for who he really is that we can be grounded in our ministry in him. If he is these things, and he says he is, then we can be grounded, established, firm, unshakable in our ministry in his name and in our faith. So here's the question, my friends. What steps are you taking so that you're growing in your own faith and trust in the Lord? Growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in obedience to him. Growing in repentance of your sin. Growing in praise of his glorious name. You see, all of life needs to be intentional or life just passes us by. In the marketing classes I took in college, I think give us a, 
a really good principle. It says, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Don't you want your life to matter? Don't you want to grow in understanding the scriptures and walking with the Lord and growing in fellowship of him with each other? Then it requires those obedient steps to do what Christ has called you to do. And if Jesus is all of these things that we see in Matthew 14, then your greatest need is to grow in him and loving and trusting and serving him. Consider well what your response will be in the coming days and weeks to that question. What steps are you taking? Now next week we're going to begin chapter 15 and we're going to see in a very direct contrast the faith of those who come to Jesus out of desperation and say, if I can just touch the fringe of his garments with those who are in defiant rebellion against God in heart and mind, the scribes and the Pharisees. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today's sermon? In reality, you'll see them. They just flow directly out of what we've already discovered. Because Jesus receives all who come to him, we will not hesitate to go to him with all of our needs. If he is ready to receive us, then it's up to us to go, whatever our needs are at whatever time, knowing that he is there. But secondly, because Jesus receives all who come to him, we will not hesitate to bring others to him with all of their needs. That's why we intercede on behalf of others. That's why we tell others about Christ. That's why we invite people to Bible study and to church, because we want them as well to encounter Christ, who alone can meet all their needs. Thirdly, because Jesus is the I am, we will not fear whatever may come to us in our life and in our ministry. And so at those moments when we are fearful, when we are tempted to fear, it's at that moment we pray, God, you are the I am. I believe. Help my unbelief. So that we're strengthened to put our trust and faith in him. Thirdly, fourthly, because Jesus is the I am, we will live our lives in service to and worship of him without shame or reservation. If he is all of that for us, then the least we can do is just give all that we have to him. Because as we serve and enjoy him now, we will glorify him forever in his wonderful presence. Lastly, because Jesus is all that we need, we will introduce him to others in our words and in our actions. What a privilege we have to be a people who know the living God, who know the truth, who know what will safely lead people to the shores of heaven. And we don't share it. That's a shame. Let's repent. Let's ask God to strengthen us that we would not only be willing, but gladly and willing to share what it is we have learned and who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we are reminded who Jesus is. We, we just want to say thank you that we have the privilege of knowing him. But Father, we also know that if Jesus has come, it's so that we'd become more like him, and we know that that job is not yet done because we're realistic about who we are. But we're thankful that we know there is grace that will finish the job. And so we turn to you daily and even now and repent and say, oh God, we come to you with our needs. We want to grow. We want to learn. Help us. Father, I pray that as the challenge goes out, you would soften resistant hearts and minds 
to really listen, to really hear, to really understand, and to really apply. Father, this is divine work, so we place it in your hands because we trust you. But Father, would you give us the resolve in this coming week to declare you well, represent you well, to be quick to come to you with our needs, quick to confess our sins, quick to reach out and serve. Because we have a great God who is our healer and so much more. Father, we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh because we are needy, because you are worthy, because we want to worship you. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.